with me. We're going to be in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 12. If you do not have a copy of the Bible, there's a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, Lord willing. And uh, you can take that uh, Bible and open it up to page 984, and you'll find yourself in the text with us this morning. Now, before we get into the passage, I've got to tell you, um, George Whitfield Fletcher emailed me this week. And uh, if you don't know who that is, that's Harry Fletcher, and he's going to be preaching the next passage. And he said, Pastor Rob, you know, I don't think you should handle six verses this morning. I think I need two of your verses. And so he stole two of my verses for next week. Uh, You'll be thankful that he did that because this is a long sermon nonetheless, and uh, he'll cover some of those verses next week. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Like many stupid bets, this one began with a couple of boys trying to one-up one another. There were four or five guys in the locker room. We had just finished a cross-country practice, and one of the boys just screamed out, Ew! I smell disgusting! I haven't washed my uniform in like three days! And everyone laughed, and we told him how gross he was. Well, one of the guys decided that three days wasn't much of anything, so he said, that's nothing, dude. I once went a week without washing my uniform. You want to talk about smelling bad? Well, I don't know who yelled out the idea first, but someone got the idea of a contest. So he said to the three-day smelly guy, hey, man, I dare you to keep going without washing that uniform. In fact, I bet that I could go longer than you could go without washing my uniform. And three days, Smelly comes back at him, and he says, oh yeah, well better yet, I bet I could go the entire season without washing my uniform. And like that, it was on. Every guy in the cross-country team entered the grossest, smelliest bet that I've ever been a part of. (laughs) Over the course of the season, our uniforms got funkier and funkier, and you should have seen the scowl on Coach's face every time we walked past him. And if memory serves me correctly, and I think it does, I don't think any guy on the team had a date that entire season. (laughs) We ran and sweat, ran and sweat day after day. But here's the most important part of the story. I won the bet. And when I took that uniform down to the biological lab, there was a new creature, previously unknown to science, that we discovered. Now, when I come to a passage like Colossians 3, I think of that stinky old uniform, and you'll be pleased to know that I burned that toxic waste hazard at the end of the season. Do you remember what Paul wrote last week in verse 9? He said, put off the old self. It's a clothing metaphor. The old self is like that old, ratty, cross-country uniform. When you think of the old self, I want you to think about mildew and and sweat stains and crusty grossness. That's what we're talking about here, and that's why Paul is saying, take it off and burn it. But There's the thing with the old self. It's a tenacious thing. You can kill it. You can put it in the grave. But the problem is, is it likes to crawl back out again. So if you don't put on new clothes, then the old self will find purchase in your life again, and it will start making a mess of your life all over again. So we need new clothes, don't we? 
it's not just enough to take off that old cross-country uniform. I'd better have something else to wear or else I'm going to be wearing the emperor's new clothes. So in Christ, we have new clothes to put on. And that's what we're looking at this morning. You guys there in Colossians 3.12? Let's look at this new wardrobe. Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We're going to see three points to this sermon this morning. The first is that we need to put on Christ's righteous robes. And that's what we saw there in verse 12. There's two important aspects of this first verse. The first is that there's a new identity in Christ. In verse 12, Paul begins by describing who gets to wear the new clothes. He identifies all Christians as chosen, holy, and beloved. Have you ever thought to yourself, how does God feel about me? What does he think about me? Well, Paul expresses God's thoughts to us. Chosen, holy, beloved. Now, some in Christian circles have felt that it was dangerous to remind Christians of their secure identity in Christ. The thought process goes something like this. Well, if you tell people that God has chosen them and made them holy, then they're not going to have any incentive to be holy in their life. And isn't it better to keep them lurching in the dark? Isn't it better to make them feel guilty so that they try a little harder to be holy? Well, there you go. You're back to that mechanical obedience thing again, aren't you? Legalism always tells us that we are true, try to manage sin or moderate sin in our lives. But Paul takes a different approach. He says, you are, now be. You are chosen, holy, beloved. So act like it. Why should Christians avoid sin? Is it because when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that the grace was applicable to that moment, but moving forward now you have to earn God's favor? Absolutely not. No, we avoid sin because we don't get the blessings of the new life if we continually, ongoingly, willfully sin. Do you get the benefit of freshly washed clothes if you wear that stinky cross-country uniform underneath? I mean, think about it. You don't feel the warmth of the clothes freshly out of the dryer. When you go down to smell the clothes, they don't smell uh, fresh and clean. No, everything is mingled. The whole experience is mingled with nasty and rotten. You don't want that. So that's why Paul says, take it off, keep it off. You can't experience the fullness of new life in Christ if you're mixing the new with the old. It can only be new to get the full benefit. So far from giving people a free pass to sin, knowing that people are chosen, beloved, holy, reminds us of all that we are in Jesus. I love the language. Chosen, holy, beloved. When you read through the Old Testament, the Bible actually describes God referring to Israel in this way. Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8. 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you. And in Christ, when we have Jesus, this identity is secure. Romans 8.33, Paul says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If he says something about our identity, then it must be true, because he is God. What about being holy? What does it mean? Well, Harry used a, uh, an illustration a couple of weeks ago that he had uh, set this coat apart that he was wearing. He also told us that we were saints in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also want you to understand something else about holiness. I think the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, captures this well. It asks the question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And then looking at 1 Corinthians 6.19, it answers the question, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way, now this is beautiful, that without the will of the Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Chosen, holy, and most beautiful of all, beloved. As a father with his daughter, as a father with his son, you are beloved. So that's who gets to wear the clothes. Now, what do these new clothes look like? Well, the Christian's new clothes, one commentator notes, the garment of a Christian is, um, of Christian godliness is seamless. It isn't a mix and match patchwork. When Paul says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, it doesn't mean that you kind of get to pick and choose one of those things as if you could pick compassion but not be kind. He sees all of these things as intermingled and interwoven together. I mean, just imagine a person walking around with a big hole in their shirt. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Well, that's the same idea here in the text. All of these things are part of the new Christian identity. What is a virtue? What is a virtue? We tend not to speak of virtues today. But it was very common in the language of Paul's day. A virtue was simply a good moral habit. So if you're thinking of the opposite of a virtue, a vice, then it makes sense to say that a vice is then a bad moral habit. So virtues are character traits that become woven into who you are so that you are the kind of person who is compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. It's different from a law, isn't it? A law is a statement of what is good or a prohibition of something that you ought not to do. But a virtue, a virtue is different because a virtuous person isn't compassionate because someone told them to be compassionate. They're compassionate because there's this inward disposition of the heart that motivates them to be compassionate so that the more a person grows in virtue, the more that they don't need a law to compel them to do good. And the less a person is virtuous, the more that they need a law to kind of prod them to do the right thing. 
James Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, notes that in a sense, then, to become virtuous is to internalize the law and the good that the law points to so that you follow it more or less automatically. As Aristotle put it, when you've acquired a moral habit, it becomes second nature. So how does uh, something become second nature? Well, think about something being first nature. It's those biological processes that we don't really control like breathing and blinking. You're not choosing to breathe right now. You're not even thinking about breathing right now. Well, now you're thinking about breathing, but before I said anything, you weren't thinking about breathing because 99.9% of the time, we're not consciously thinking about these things, breathing, blinking. And so for a habit to become second nature, it becomes so woven into who you are that it's as natural for you as breathing and blinking so that when you see an opportunity to do good, you just do it without thinking about it. You share Jesus with someone without thinking about it. You hold the door open for someone without thinking about it. Well, how do we get this? How do we grow into a virtuous person? Well, Paul explains in Philippians 4, verse 9. He says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And I see two important principles here for growing in virtue. Okay? Principle number one is we learn virtues through imitation. Did you notice that in the text earlier in Philippians 3.17? Paul explains, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. You know, when I'm up early in the morning and I'm shaving my face and little Zach and little Isaac are standing there and they're looking up and they're watching daddy shave their face, I get this image of my head of my sons being adults and doing the same thing. They're watching me because they're learning how to shave their face. Though I get cuts all the time, so I don't know if they want to do what I do. A Christian grows in compassion, humility, patience, kindness, forgiveness, and love by watching those who walk closely with Christ. I want to say something to the more seasoned Christians in the room. You are a role model whether you like it or not whether you know it or not. Younger younger Christians are watching you. And when I say younger, I'm not talking about a five-year-old downstairs, though that may be the case. I'm talking about anyone who has just started walking with Christ. They need to see you. They're taking their cues from you. They're watching the way that you handle your life, your personal life, your business life, your church life, your family life. They're seeing the way that you respond to things that you don't agree with, how you participate in corporate worship, how you respond to suffering, the way that you reach out to people or lack thereof. They're taking their cues from you. How is your model? And if you haven't been walking with Christ, well, Paul's essentially saying, find someone who's doing it well and watch and learn. Principle two, practice makes perfect. We grow into the habit of compassion by doing intentional, compassionate things. 
You know, I, I came to realize uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, that I am not by nature an empathetic, compassionate person. Might surprise you. That guy's a pastor. He's supposed to be all those things, right? It's just not, I'm not hardwired that way. I can walk into a store. I can check out with a clerk. I could never look them in the eye. I have something in my brain, and I'm just thinking off in la-la land, and I never say a word to them, which is not right. It dehumanizes the person across the counter from me. So in order to grow in compassion, I have to do intentional things like looking across the counter and saying, well, how are you doing today? Looking them in the eyes, smiling at them, asking them a personal question so that we can engage in dialogue. Practice makes perfect. And that's how we grow in virtue. Now, you can simplify this list, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, even further. I don't like lists that much. I forget after two or three things. So I need things simplified. And in Romans 13, 14, Paul doesn't even bother with a list. He just simply says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He perfectly embodied these virtues. So that if you want to be the kind of person that God wants you to be, look at him. Look at him. And as you do that, you will grow in every virtue, particularly the hardest. Now we're going to move into the hardest one in the second point. Forgiveness. Jesus equals a reason to forgive. Look at verse 13. Paul moves from these virtues and then he says, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive Now, have you ever thought to yourself as you're uh, sitting in Christian circles or making your way through the Bible, why does God care so much about forgiveness? I mean, it's all over the place in the Bible. It's in the stories. It's in the Proverbs. It's in the Psalms. uh, It's in the Gospels. It's in the parables. It's in the Lord's Prayer. We find it in the epistles. Right here in the book of Colossians, it's sandwiched in the middle of this list of virtues. Why does God care so much about forgiveness? forgiveness. I've heard it said that much of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians can be traced to forgiveness. It's true. Unforgiveness breeds all kinds of bad things. Bitterness, resentment, anger, unkindness, even despair. So it makes sense that as Christians, we should know how to forgive and know how to do it well. What does real forgiveness look like? What is it? What is it not? And I'm going to tell you that as you consider forgiveness and you think about it, there's a lot of confusion out there on what it is. Sam Storms, an author, shared five myths about forgiveness. He says these are five lies that many people have embraced and believe And it hurts and impacts their ability to forgive others. So let's take a look at these myths. Myth number one, forgiveness means forgetting. You've heard the expression forgive and forget. It's a nice saying, but it's highly misleading. Why? Well, think about it theologically. God is a forgiving God, but God is not a forgetting God. 
Uh, we read passages like Isaiah 43, 25, where God says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And we think that that means that God has actually physically forgotten something. But God doesn't forget anything. If God forgot something, he would not be omniscient. But he is omniscient. He knows all things. He remembers all things. But i got to tell you that God's forgiveness is even more powerful because he does remember, and yet he chooses to forgive. God always has and always will know all things, but he has promised never to use our sins against us or to treat us as if the reality of our sin were present in his mind. So when you forgive a person or you ask forgiveness from a person, it's unreasonable to expect that you or they could forget the offense. It happened. It occurred. It's humanly impossible for us to forget something that we have experienced. Indeed, sometimes we feel guilty because we think we're supposed to forget, but we can't. And I see nowhere in the Scripture where God asks us to forget. I only see where God says, move forward with that person and don't hold the offense against them anymore. Myth two. Forgiveness means that the pain goes away. Sam Storm shares, in most cases, the only way you can stop hurting is to stop feeling, and the only way you can stop feeling is to die emotionally. God didn't make you to be a passionless robot. If we were passionless passionless robots, we'd have no ability to love God or to love other people. But we're not. Some of you are struggling right now to forgive another person because you know that you can't stop feeling the sting of the offense. And so you think to yourself, well, if I'm to forgive them, then I have to be insincere to my feelings, even though deep down I hurt. I want you to think of this example of John. John was abandoned by his father as a boy, and the agony and deep feelings of betrayal are intense. John grew up watching other boys playing ball with their dad, and every time he would be at a sports event or receive an award and an activity, he would see that empty chair sitting there, and it would be a reminder to him that he didn't have a dad physically present. Every time he sat around the dinner table, every special event, absent. Now later in life, John's married with kids and through a series of events, he reconnects with his father and his father asks forgiveness and John extends it. Upon reconciliation, he's under the assumption that in order to really forgive his dad, that he must never feel the pain of his fatherless childhood. Then one evening, John watches his dad wrestling on the floor with his boys. And in that moment, the pain of abandonment comes rushing back all over again. And John is a Christian, and he walks away thinking, what's the matter with me? Why can't I forgive my dad? Well, I believe that John has forgiven his father. You see, some pains never dissipate. The power of forgiveness is that we choose to live with wounds and love someone even though their offense still hurts. 
And I can think of no more powerful demonstration of this than the Lord Jesus Christ himself who will eternally bear the scars in his hands, in his feet, in his side of the offense of our sin. Myth number three. Forgiveness means that we cannot long for justice. Forgiveness does not mean that you must ignore a wrong that was done to you or deny that it happened. God doesn't diminish the gravity of the offense. He doesn't tell us that that was no big deal. No, if someone cheated you out of money and it hurt you for years to come, that was a big deal. If someone betrayed you at the deepest level and you trusted them, it matters. Forgiveness does not ask for a miscarriage of justice. Forgiveness means that we determine in our heart to let God be God, to let him be responsible for carrying out justice. Paul explains this in Romans 12, verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then Paul goes on to share what our responsibility is in this process. Verses 20 and 21, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So it's entirely legitimate to long for justice. But Paul says, don't you be the judge. Don't you be the executioner. Let God be that. Let him deal with the situations. And here's the truth, believer. He's a lot better at it than we are. Myth number four. Forgiveness means we must make it easy for someone to hurt us again. Does forgiveness mean that you essentially have to open yourself up repeatedly to receive more wounds. Absolutely not. The better part of wisdom tells us that if someone has hurt you, especially in an ongoing way, then you must set up boundaries in your relationship with them. I knew a pastor who had poured countless hours into a young man. We're going to call him Danny. And the pastor had a huge heart for him. He invested time, money, prayer, sleepless nights in Danny's life. Danny's situation uh, was like a lot of situations. It was cyclical in nature. He would hit rock bottom. He'd come back, ask for help. He would receive the help. And then once he was up on his feet again, he would take advantage of everyone within his fear of relational pull. And the pastor decided that he'd have to break the cycle by distancing himself from Danny. Now, Danny's brother loved his brother very much. And he was very angry when the pastor had pulled back in this relationship with Danny. And he wrote to the pastor and basically said, Danny's back on the mend. You need to invest in him again. People are not being very gracious and forgiving towards Danny. Well, the pastor was hurt by this letter. He had literally given everything in this situation, and then he explained some context of how he had pursued Danny. He also was forthright with some boundaries that he was going to establish with Danny moving forward. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from this letter. 
I'm going to be honest. I feel badly burnt. I do not want to be held captive by these emotions when it comes to forgiving, but they are still present. In your letter, you suggested that people are mad at Danny, and I don't think that this is the case. Rather, I sense that people feel afraid of getting burned. When someone has burned you, the fear of getting burned again creates distance in the relationship. Danny has not sought reconciliation with those that he has hurt, so people just simply feel leery. But over time, these feelings can be overcome if Danny is willing to put in the hard work. The work involves asking people's forgiveness and demonstrating repentance through consistent actions. As far as my involvement is concerned, I am here. I am not finished with Danny. However, if he desires my friendship, it must be a two-way street now. If he says he's going to do something with me, he needs to show up. Every time I say yes to Danny, I'm also saying no to a church member or hardest of all, to my own family. One author writes, true love never aids and abets the sin of another. The offender may themselves be offended that you set parameters on your friendship to prevent them from doing further harm. They may even say, how dare you? This just proves that you didn't mean it when you said you forgave me. Don't buy into their manipulation. Forgiveness does not mean you become a helpless and passive doormat to their continual sin. Myth number five. Forgiveness is a one-time event. How untrue is that? There have been people in my life who have greatly hurt me, and every time I see them, I go through this conversation, Rob, I know what they did to you, But you said you forgive them. So you're going to forgive them again right now. What does real forgiveness look like? Paul says here in verse 13, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In this passage, we see that we can forgive because we have been forgiven. And we also see that our forgiveness is to be as or like or in the same manner of God's forgiveness to us in Christ. And what did that look like? Well, God in Christ forgave us by absorbing in himself the painful consequences of our sin. He also forgave our debt. And we saw earlier in the book of Colossians that God reconciled us unto himself. He restored the relationship that sin had shattered. And he did all of these things through the cross of Jesus Christ. John Perkins tells in his book, Let Justice Roll Down, of a seemingly endless night of being beaten in a Mississippi jail. He was stomped, kicked, and the one thing that he could do to protect himself was to curl up in the fetal position and pray to God that it would stop. But it didn't stop. The night went on, and the beatings went on and on, and he writhed in a pool of his own blood while inebriated officers took turn after turn torturing him. One officer took an unloaded pistol, stuck it to his head, and pulled the trigger. Another bigger man kicked him 
repeatedly in the head until he was knocked unconscious. It was a barbarous torture. A great substantive reason to hate. And as he laid in his hospital bed, this, these were the thoughts that occurred to him. He writes in the book, The Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind, the image of the cross, Christ on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached, yet he was arrested and and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial. He also faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to rough wooden planks and killed. Killed like a common criminal. At the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony. He was dying. When he looked at that mob who had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them, and he prayed God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people, for they do not know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. I couldn't get away from that. It's a profound, mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate It may not see its victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me on that bed full of bruises and stitches. God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with love for the white man in rural Mississippi. I felt strong again, stronger than ever. What doesn't destroy me makes me stronger. I know it's true because it happened to me. How do we forgive even when we can't forget? Even when it still hurts? Even when it seems like there is going to be a miscarriage of justice? Paul says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Call the cross of Christ to mind. Think on that. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's a huge ask. I mean, I'm okay with this compassion and humility and and uh, kindness thing, but forgiving him or her? You don't know what they did to me. It feels next to impossible for me to be able to do that. And I've got to tell you, you're right unless you put on the most important virtue of all. Look at the text, verse 14. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the most important garment of all. In Scripture, it is described as the greatest virtue of all. In Romans 13, 8, and 9, Paul says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. 
For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet. Any other commandment is all summed up with this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Why is love so important? Well, it's the catalyst that empowers us and energizes us to do the fruits of the Spirit. It's the grease that minimizes relational friction so that when I love someone, I'm able to actually put up with their flaws and it makes all of those other virtues work together. It's the glue that unites us together. It's the mortar in the bricks that holds each Christian next to one another firmly. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the beautiful thing about love is, he says in the next verse, love never ends. Wow. Who is Jesus? Jesus is our power to love. The Apostle John was known as the Apostle of Love and was also called the Beloved Disciple. He was just a young lad when he first started following Jesus and he saw this radical demonstration of the love of God because God had sent the Son of God. And the Son of God effused the love of God to all who were around him. And this love captivated John. At times, authors will write books and they'll refer to themselves in the third person. They'll call themselves the writer or this reporter, but John didn't do that. He didn't see himself that way. When John refers to himself in the third person in his gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John saw himself. And that's how he sees every Christian. In fact, when you're reading John's gospel, you can almost insert your name there. Rob, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Why is the love of Christ so powerful? What does it do? It powerfully changes us. Listen to what John writes in 1 John 4, 9 through 12. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. Tradition tells us that the Apostle John preached to his last days. He was so enfeebled that he would need to be carried into the church. Unable to speak for long, he had a clear and consistent message that he repeated in every single meeting. My dear children, love one another. 